Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to cover some basic questions uh, that are raised repeatedly in this work uh, and hopefully give you a little bit of clarity about some of the basics of domestic abuse. But before we jump into those questions, I want to remind you, if you are enjoying the PeaceWorks podcast, if the material and the content is helpful to you, um, let me encourage you to take the next step. And for you, the next step is probably PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site. And you can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, so today's content, we're going to be talking a little bit uh, about the basics. And I'm, the reason why I'm covering this now, I thought this would be helpful to have these three questions at least briefly addressed so that uh, we could point people to this particular episode. So if you're joining us because a friend or a parishioner or a family member sent you this episode, welcome. I hope this content is helpful, that it uh, piques your interest, and that you pursue more information and education regarding domestic abuse. Here's the first question. One of the most common questions that uh, we hear regarding domestic abuse, why, why do victims sometimes return or stay with their abusers? I remember several years ago, a biblical counseling friend of mine was so frustrated as their church had worked diligently to help a victim escape uh, a dangerous home. And within a matter of weeks, she had returned and decided to no longer seek counsel from the church. He was incredibly frustrated and wondered why he should continue or be persistent in working this case. I encouraged him that day that this is normal, that victims of abuse return on average between 7 and 12 times to their abuser, and there's many, many reasons. We can't list all of them, but let's just walk through a few reasons that victims would return to an abusive situation. Here's the first. Abusive partners work really hard to keep their victims captive. And I know that sounds uh, a little odd to use the word captive, but that's really what we're dealing with here. Isolation, manipulation, coercion, and threats, they all create a feeling of being trapped in a relationship. So uh, an abuser can isolate the victim from friends and family, opportunities, and all of that. Uh, is a long-term strategy. All of that has long-term effects. It reduces the individual's opportunities for escape. So think about it. If I've isolated my partner from friends, family, resources, skills, job opportunities, then any attempt to leave will be incredibly difficult. There are many, many ways in which I could keep someone captive, but reducing their opportunities for safety is a real key one. So one of the reasons why victims stay is because they don't have too many options and much of that is due to the abuser's hard work at keeping them isolated. One of the key tactics here that you'll hear a lot or one of the key aspects of abuse you'll hear about at this point is financial abuse. 
According to research that's been done from multiple agencies, the number one reason why female victims return to an abuser is financial. So I want you to take that into consideration. Opportunity is one of the um, key barriers to leaving. And if an abuser has limited or, uh, or eliminated their victim's opportunity, then leaving is going to be not only difficult, but seemingly impossible. So think quickly about how your church even, if you're thinking about doing church-based domestic abuse ministry, could provide simple resources to make leaving or to make safety um, a little easier on the victim. Number two is fear. So one of the reasons why victims remain is fear. Fear is a powerful motivator and one of the key tools in the toolbox of an abuser. So don't be surprised if a counselee, a client, someone you're working with, the lady in the small group who you've been helping develop a safety plan uh, chooses to return or to stay. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear of death, fear of loss, fear of losing the children, fear of sharing the children uh, with an unpredictable spouse, fear of financial um, instability, and the list goes on and on and on. Here's the third, and this may be the most powerful. She loves him. Now, some people may, may think, how can you love someone who treats you so poorly? But this guy, this person, this abuser hasn't always been like this. He doesn't always function like this. There are times where he's quite uh, desirable and sweet and loving and caring. Not only do those memories exist, but the hope that that person will return exists. We shouldn't discredit or in any way downplay the existence of genuine care, concern, and compassion on the part of the victim. We should actually applaud it. I think one of the things that it is frustrating from an outside perspective for a victim to return to an abuser because of a, an abiding love for the abuser and a hope for the abuser, and for many of us that can seem uh, a bit out there, but rather than condemning that action or challenging that action, there is a time and a place where we have to, in many ways, respectfully support that action. We can say, I don't agree, or there are other options, or let's process this, let's talk about other options, but we shouldn't discredit the fact that this individual loves their partner, and love is a very powerful motivator. And while we disagree with the decision, perhaps, we certainly can applaud them for their care, concern, and compassion, uh, because it is admirable uh, to see that trait in them. Survivors often want to report, uh, or often report, excuse me, that they want the abuse to end, they really do, uh, but they may stay with their abusive partner uh, because of hope and love. And let's face it, the abuser will promise things, such as they will change, right? And that hope of change is also a powerful motivator. Of course, the list goes on and on and on and on. So uh, maybe a helpful exercise to you is to take those three or four things that I've said and then build some branches off of them. What, what other reasons do you think uh, victims have to stay in abusive relationships? And if you're a people helper working with a victim survivor, Consider that, you know, consider those motivations and why an individual would stay or return uh, and let that guide you rather than the frustration that your advice or your expectations are not being met. 
Remember, you are not the most knowledgeable person in this situation. The victim is. The second question, most common question that you'll hear in regards to, um, to domestic abuse, and I think another helpful introductory piece, is the question, do abusers show warning signs? Like, can you see it coming? And I would say, in, in my experience working with couples and individuals over the years, the one fact, the one truth that is evident is abusers rarely show uh, these tactics and power and control on the first date. I mean, you rarely see, I mean, I, you rarely see somebody fall in love with a controlling, domineering person. Now, granted, there are some, some aspects of normalcy or some aspects of trauma that could play into that, but for the most part, you go on that first date, there's usually not um, restraint and control and domineering behavior. And so, warning signs tend to develop over time. Uh, one of the big ones, I think, is if, if there's pressure. So pressure from a partner that's undue or unwarranted pressure is a warning sign to me. And it is so hard to see in an early part of a relationship, right? And so that's another area of compassion to say, hey, we get it. When you're lost in those early days of a relationship, it is difficult to see or it's easy to mistake pressure for love. But many abusers will apply pressure in many different ways early on in the relationship. In fact, if there's an insistence to move the relationship along quickly, right? So if there is a, a real insistence to rush every aspect of the relationship, uh, that could be a warning sign. If uh, they seem too good to be true, uh, they probably are. Now, everybody puts their best foot forward early on in a relationship, but uh, abusers are really, really good at it, really, really good at being charming and presenting well. Um, so just consider that, you know, there, there are some warning signs to being too charming. Uh, controlling is probably the biggest one. If this individual is excessively jealous or controlling in the relationship, that's a warning sign, especially uh, prior to getting married. If there's just a lot of control and demands, that's a red flag. Uh, blame shifting, so those are classics, right? Let's just do the, the, the three words that are most commonly used from the Duluth model, minimization, denial, and blame. And so if an individual, if this individual has a hard time taking responsibility for anything, that's a big red flag. And more than likely, if they can't take responsibility for anything, then they're not going to take responsibility in the future, especially when you're in a more committed relationship or you're in um, have more in common, such as kids and finances and housing and so on. So keep that in mind as you're looking at these potential red flags, a lack of responsibility. Uh, criticism's a big one. I mean, if it's a constant criticism, uh, especially, and I would say if you're talking male perpetrators to female victims, criticizing appearance, uh, questioning whereabouts, who they're with, and that goes back to that jealousy argument, uh, that type of controlling behavior is also um, a big red flag. Isolatory behavior, um, if, if the individual is just insistent that their partner do what they want, hang out with who they want, and remove themselves from existing friends and family, that's another big warning sign. And hypocrisy, 
hypocrisy. If they're, they're one way somewhere and another way somewhere else, that's a major red flag. And it's something that we see later on. And so let me just do a line here on how this plays out. So in the relationship, he is one way in public, he's another way in private, especially when it comes to people he wants to impress. That's a pretty big red flag. And now stretch that out into the future. You're involved in a local church and he acts like the devil at home and he acts like a saint at the church. And what ends up happening is the church colludes with him. They can't possibly see how he could be this bad, right? And so that's all part of the strategy of reducing the victim, right, and elevating himself. And so those might be some basic red flags. I'm sure there's many others that, that you could think of, uh, but that's just a good, I think, introductory list to what we're talking about. Let's see if we can get to a couple more basic questions. Here's one that I hear quite a bit because of the work I do with perpetrators. Is it possible for abusers to change? And that's a that's a huge question, a loaded question, and I will say, in the short, my answer is yes. And I'm going to have some caveats to that. But there are groups of people in the work who would say no, that it is impossible for an abusive person to change. My faith doesn't permit me to go that far. I do believe in what the Bible calls reprobates, and so I do think there are some... Um, some folks who have been given over to their own desires, and it's kind of a, um, a different um, scenario. But, but as far as just generally answering the question, do abusers change, I have to say yes. And let me give you a couple examples of why, why I say that, or a couple rationale here. I think everybody changes all the time. So in general, change is not a hard thing. Change is not a difficult prospect. Everyone changes all the time. And so anytime you're working with an abusive person from a educational, counseling, therapeutic standpoint, confrontational standpoint, you should expect movement. Now, sometimes uh, that movement is um, in the wrong direction. Sometimes abusers become more obstinate, more resistant, um, more repulsive in their behavior. And I actually think that's a good thing. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's the most desirable thing, but I think it's a helpful thing because when you see that response, it allows you to take the next step. So if obstinance is his, is his key response, then I know what to do next as a leader, okay? There's no evidence that you desire change. There's no evidence you desire repentance. You're gonna dig your heels in, fine. We have ways that we can protect your partner um, and, and hopefully provide for her safety and sanity while we uh, correct you and confront you and, and maybe even just remove ourselves from you. I mean, if you're not willing to, to give us anything, I'm not going to work harder than you, than you are. And that's kind of a phrase that I use quite a bit. I'm not going to work harder on your transformation than you are. So it's possible that they change for the worse. It's possible that they, in, they implement some basic changes for the basis of manipulation. That's actually pretty common. I'll, I'll do just enough to get things back to normal. And I think that's a key word. When normalcy is the goal, uh, we have a problem because uh, an abuser living in normal is dangerous and destructive. And so there are abusers who will change just enough to get by to deceive those who are holding them accountable. 
I think there are some abusers who change behaviorally because they want to be safe for the partner, but they have no interest in being sanctified, right, if we're going to use Christian terms. And so I do think there are abusers who take to heart what's being said. They, they don't want to continue to be the cause of suffering in the future, and so they make incremental behavioral changes in order to create, create an environment that's safe, right? It's not holy. It's not sanctified. It's not other-centered. They're still pretty selfish. They may even be jerks. But to, to quote Ellen Pence, there is a difference between living with a jerk and living with an abuser. And uh, so they may be safe, right? And then some guys experience transformation. I just, I just think that's true, that they experience the gospel at the heart level and they, they experience transformation. Not only do they become safe, they become sanctified. They're not perfect. I think if anybody's looking for a, an abuser to become a perfect husband, uh, they're going to be waiting a long, long time. But there are enough changes then to say, wow, this person has really had an encounter with Jesus. And it is still the victim's decision as to what they want to do with those changes. Will they continue to live in that environment or has trust been completely broken down? And those are questions for a later date. But to answer the basic question, is it possible for abusers to change? The simple answer is yes. The more complex answer is to what degree? And what are the changes that we're looking for or we're expecting? All right, the next question, we'll wrap up with this question. So it's just basic questions today about domestic abuse. Uh, why do victims return? Are there red flags? Is it possible for abusers to change? And then here's another big rock. Are men victims of domestic abuse? Are men victims? I would say this question gets asked at every Q&A, every time I speak somewhere. And the, the short answer, again, is yes. Right? And much like the question before, the very quick answer is yes. The more delineated, complex, responsible, robust answer is to say, yes, while men are victims of intimate partner violence, it's important to note that around 85% of victims of intimate partner violence are female. And 95% of emergency room vi uh, visits related to domestic abuse are female. So we need to remember that while there are some male victims, it would be irresponsible of us, I think, to make male victims of domestic abuse and female victims of domestic abuse an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. And most of the time, when male victims are brought up, and I, hate, and I don't want to diminish anyone who is a victim, I just want to say most of the time when the concept of male victims is brought up, we're talking about victims of childhood sexual assault. By and large, men suffer in that area uh, to a greater degree than they do any other aspect of abuse. Uh, and the reality is uh, men suffer much more at the hands of other men, even in that world. So in that world, it's, it's one discussion. And I remember I was on a panel one time. We were talking about how to respond to men. And I thought the panel was going to be about men who abuse. And so did other members of the panel, but they also had a, a male victim of childhood sexual assault on the panel. I thought it was unfair and removed myself from some of the discussion uh, out of respect for him. So I don't think those are the same discussion. But in regards to domestic abuse, the short answer is yes. However, it's not an apples to apples comparison uh, as male victims 
uh, are much, much fewer because of the aspect of power. And male victims of domestic abuse tend to have uh, more resources at their, expo at their uh, uh, disposal. They tend to have uh, more access to freedom. They tend to be able to walk away from situations much easier. And while there are cases, um, we want to deal with those, I think, case by case and individually and not conflate it with intimate partner violence that's affecting women. So I've often said I'll be happy to address male victims of domestic abuse once we see domestic abuse against women ended. Again, not to cheapen any man's experience, but I don't think it's fair to either male victims or female victims to again have an apples to apples comparison, especially when you consider the data. Cool. All right. Thank you. Thank you everyone again for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. I appreciate you so much. Um, it's uh, great to see you and interact with you um, every week here on the podcast. Please, if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, please do that for us. Give us a five star if possible to let people know how much you appreciate the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step, be sure to jump over to chrismoles.org and learn more about PeaceWorks University. All right, guys, until next time, God bless.